Chapter Four of The Other Side of the Door by Lucia Chamberlain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Chapter Four The First Day in Court. As father had said, the breaking of the colts was well worth seeing. The first day I arrived at the ranch, clinging to the top rail of the corral, I watched the glossy huddled flanks and shoulders and tossing heads of the youngsters crowding together in the middle of the enclosure, quivering with apprehension of the man approaching with his rope, until, the man being unendurably near, one and another would break and wheel and trot with high head, whinnying around the corral close to the fence. Then when Perez had one fast, one end of his rope around the glossy neck, and slowly working toward him, hand over hand, finally touched the velvety head, how the creature started, swerved, tried to back, and felt the jerk of the halter. It made me think of the way the prisoner had started when the policeman touched his arm. At first their nervous, proud, restive airs reminded me constantly of that strange person, and not only the colts, but sometimes it was some drifting shadow of cloud, some color or some sound, that inexplicably brought him up to mind, and I would plague myself with wondering what was going on in the city, and what was to become of him. But as the days passed, and no newspapers came from the city, at least I saw none, and no letters to remind me of what was happening there, I recalled him less and less distinctly. He remained in my mind, but as a sort of dream. Things about me reminded me only of themselves, and I became absorbed in picking out a new saddle horse, and searching the meadows over to see if the Mariposa lilies were coming up this year in their accustomed places. Splendid fields, in early spring filled with wildflowers, stretched down toward the bay, but close around the house were the somber, and to me, more beautiful groves of oaks. To wander away until I had lost sight of the house in their olive glooms, and saw nothing around me but dark trunks, crooked elbows of boughs and sweeping leaves, was my delight. I loved to crown myself with their white beards of moss, and fancy I was walking through a cathedral aisle, a princess going to be married. But whereas I had never needed to imagine a bridegroom before, myself and the crown had been enough. Now my imagination insistently placed a figure walking beside me, or coming to meet me under the solemn roof of branches. I had to abandon my crown, and run races with myself before I could leave the figure behind. On the whole it was safer, I found, just now, not to imagine too much, but instead, while father was there, to take long rides with him into the San Mateo hills, and after he had gone, shorter excursions in the vicinity of the town, or else to walk with Abby in the morning down the broad Embarcadero Road to the little wharf on the bay. It was charming enough there when all was idle, with white adobe huts and dark faces sleeping in the sun, and the lap of the tide on the breakwater. But when a ship was coming in, or was loading to get out, the embarcadero filled the eye. Carts backing up with vegetables, casks being rolled out on the wharf with a hollow and reverberating sound, hallowings from the boat, and then round she would swing, with a tremendous snapping of canvas, while the shadow of her brown sails, patched with red, floated over all. The country, and especially the country in spring, 
seems to have a way of making the place where one has lived before very unreal and far distant. Two weeks of such dreamy living drifted the city, and the violent things that had been done there, so far behind me that I could think of them without a tremor. I could even think of my own part in them as if it had happened in a play. Then one evening, just before dark, a boy on a heavily lathered horse rode up to the piazza steps, and like the messenger in a novel, handed me a letter. It was from father. "'Have everything in readiness to start tomorrow morning,' he wrote. "'I shall expect you at the house at six-thirty tomorrow night without fail.' This letter threw me into a flutter of excitement. I was accustomed to short-notice orders from father, orders that carried no explanations, but they had always been sent through the mails. A messenger met great need of haste. I recognized him as father's office boy. Was my father ill? I asked. No, he was in excellent health. I thought, perhaps he has been suddenly called out of the city and wants to see me before he leaves home. It surely couldn't be that this summons had anything to do with Johnny Montgomery's case. Having to rush off at such short notice, I was luckily too busy to have time to worry about it. Coming up through the valley, Perez let me drive a good deal, and the horses were so spirited I needed all my wits to keep them from running away. But when we began to wind in and out among the tall round hills to the south of the city, a nervousness came upon me, and I kept wondering what could be wanted of me. By the time we reached the house on Washington Street, I could scarcely sit still. Father was standing in the door to welcome me. I fairly flew up the steps. "'What is the matter?' I asked, almost before I hugged him. "'By and by we will talk about that,' he said. "'Now come in and see what a fine host I am.' But as I passed him, I heard him saying to Perez, "'Before you put up the horses, I want you to take this note out to Mr. James Dingley at his house and wait for an answer.' It was a charming table, lit with candles, and there was a delicious dinner, but I was too excited to eat. The glass of wine that father made me drink only seemed to make my thoughts spin faster, wondering what could be going on since by father's manner, and the message he had given Perez, I felt sure it must be something unusual. When dessert had been put on, and Lee had gone out, leaving us alone there opposite each other, I thought, now it's coming. Father had set down his coffee cup untasted. "'I have had to send for you, Ellie,' he said, "'because of a matter connected with the trial.' My heart was beating quickly, and in spite of myself my voice trembled. "'When does it begin?' I asked. "'It began last week,' Father answered. "'But there has been no evidence of any consequence yet.' He was silent for a moment, looking thoughtfully at the dancing flames of the candles. "'I suppose you know,' he went on, "'that in trials there is usually plenty of circumstantial evidence, but eyewitnesses are rare, and their testimony most valuable?' I nodded. This feeling of suspense was intolerable. "'I very much hoped that yours would not be necessary. Mr. Dingley was of that opinion. But a new development has suddenly arisen, and now I am afraid you will have to be State's witness, the most important one they will have. There are no words to tell of the panic I was in. Father's face, wrinkled with anxiety, was watching me. 
I would give anything to keep you out of it, he said. I tried to make my voice steady. And will I have to tell them whether or not I think him guilty? He put his hand over mine. God bless the child, no. You will have to tell them only exactly what you saw, all that you saw, and just how you saw it. I could breathe again. After that one awful moment, when the whole weight of the trial seemed on my shoulders, anything was a relief. But father, I said, do you really think that he is guilty? Father gave me an odd look. Aren't you the one person in this city best qualified to answer that question? I stared at him. I felt as if I had been suddenly set up in a high tower, above all other people in the world, and that I was going to fall. I had known in a blind sort of way what I had seen, and also that no one else had seen it. But I had not realized the terrible isolation, the responsibility of such knowledge. Oh, I cried. I only wish I had never gone near Dupont Street. I am so sorry I have made you unhappy. Well, my dear child, this is no time for regretting what has been done. We must think of ourselves only as two citizens of the state, and to be ready to do all we can in that cause. You know it will not be easy. It will be made as difficult as possible for you to answer straightly. He had hold of both my hands now, was looking hard into my face. And a young good-looking prisoner will make it harder yet. His eyes seemed to go straight to my thoughts. Ellie, I can depend upon you, can't I? I was glad I could say, in quite a steady voice, Oh, yes, yes. He smiled. Of course I should have known without asking. Now don't fret about it. To bed, to bed, to bed. We shall have to be up early tomorrow if we are to be in court by nine o'clock. He was smiling as he said this, with his old gaiety, but I suspected he was only putting it on to cheer me, as I now understood Senora Mendez had done when she had taken me shopping. After I got upstairs I couldn't sleep. At about ten o'clock I heard the doorbell ring, then long heavy steps going down the hall, and the shutting of a door which I guessed to be the door of the study. That was odd. Father seldom had visitors so late. I tossed and tossed. I kept trying to picture the courtroom. I saw it as a vast place, with a cold, chilly light, like the hall of the prison, filled with a surging mob of people, serried rows of lawyers all in white wigs, the memory of some English pictures, and a terrible judge in a black gown calling out my name. Suppose, even with the best I could do, I should make a mistake, forget something, or what would be much worse, remember something wrongly. I realized that I was hearing voices with remarkable clearness. I was able to recognize Father's and Mr. Dingley's, and they seemed to be talking just beneath my window. Then it occurred to me that, since the evening was mild, the window of the study, which was just beneath my room, must be open. The sound of those voices worried me. Mr. Dingley's was louder than common, and there were times when both seemed to speak at once. I got up softly and going to my window very noiselessly closed it. Then, so that I should not be quite stifled for air, I set the door into the hall wide. It opened outward, so that I had to step out on the landing. Just as I did so, I heard the study door flung open, 
quick steps in the hall, and there, from that part of the hall directly beneath the landing, Mr. Dingley's voice. Oh, that's just your supersensitive conscience. There was no need of bringing the child up to town. There's enough circumstantial evidence to convict ten men of whatever guilt there is. Then father. Yes, and I thought you had enough to convict one. That is, I did last week. But this new development, this Valencia woman, puts another face on the business. Come now, Fred. The poor woman is really mighty upset over Ruth's death. All she says is that she doesn't really believe the boy did it. And for that reason, and that reason alone, father broke in, she is going to throw all her influence with the defense. Thousands of dollars spent, and Lord knows what wires pulled to get him off. Man, you can't believe it. Don't you know she's going to fight us every inch of the way? You'll need every scrap of testimony you can dig up. And such an important piece as... They were advancing up the hall. I shrank back and closed the door. Faintly I heard the voices in the hall going on a few moments longer. Then the front door shut with a deep sound, and the house was still. I got back into bed, but it was not to sleep. It seemed that since I had been away from the city, this strange thing had happened. The Spanish woman, whom the papers had described as mourning for rude, had taken up the defense of Montgomery. I couldn't understand it. It would seem that I ought to have been glad, I who had been so anxious to find a champion for him. But queerly enough, the only feeling that came was one of fear, as if, instead of saving, she had been dragging him into worse danger. I lay, staring now at the ceiling, now at the window, where, toward dawn, a paling light began to shine. I no longer felt the nervous anxiety as it had kept me awake through the earlier part of the night. I was calmed by one great dread, the thought of the Spanish woman. Her presence rose up and possessed my imaginary courtroom, obliterating the figures of the judge and the lawyers, until it seemed that she and I and the prisoner were the only persons in the room, and that the one person she was fighting in all the city was myself. The next morning when I came in to breakfast, Father laid his hand on my cheek, which felt very burning, and said, "'You are not fit to answer one question.' My throat was dry, and it was hard work to swallow things, but he stood over me and made me eat a good breakfast. After that he had me go over the story of what I had seen on the morning I had been coming home with my basket of mushrooms. When that was done, "'Now remember,' he said, "'all you will have to do will be to tell that same story,' and to answer to the best of your recollection all questions put to you. If you are careful to do that, they can't confuse you. Abby had fetched my turban with a dark veil, which I had to put over my face before I went into the street. There a carriage was waiting. As we drove, it seemed to me there were more people in the street than usual, and when we reached the jail there was a dense crowd in front of it, and policemen were striking with their clubs to make a passage through. But our carriage drove, as Mr. Dingley's had done before, around the building and through the little alley to the back entrance. Even here some people were gathered, and as I stepped to the pavement, a woman called out in a shrill voice, "'Ain't that Carla de Valencia?' Father seized me and almost lifted me up on the steps and into the high, coldly lit hall. Today, however, it was not empty. 
a continuous stream of men, some of them escorting ladies, were hurrying in the front door and across the echoing flags and up the stairs. Following them, we were upon the first balcony and in front of the door which was kept a swing by the people going in. Father stopped and said something to a policeman who seemed to be on guard in the hall. He pointed at a door next to the one which was so constantly opening and shutting. This way, Father said, and I found myself, much to my surprise, not in a crowded courtroom, but in a small box of a place, hardly large enough to hold the six chairs that furnished it, and with only one other person in it besides ourselves. This is the witness room, Father explained. We await our summons here. I took one of the six chairs. The room was a dreary little place, with a high, dingy ceiling, one small window placed far up the wall, and a small airtight stove with no fire in it. I looked at the one other occupant with a greater interest, now that I knew that he must be a witness. He was a dark, slick, Mexican-looking man, who dangled his hat nervously from his fingers, and kept glancing at the door. Presently it opened. A policeman put his head in and said, Witness Manuel Gora. The Mexican jumped and shuffled hastily out. Father took the Alta California from his coat pocket, and I sat trying to make out the pattern in the old carpet at my feet. I had distinguished a dead-looking rose and some faded-out sunflowers when I heard the click of the door, and a waft of perfume touched the stale air and made it like a garden. I looked up. There she stood in the doorway, the Spanish woman. She was all in black, her face wax-white, a little black hat on her wonderful golden-red hair, and in her breast a tuberose. It was the intoxicating sweetness of that which had breathed upon me first, and now kept on breathing upon me, while she watched me through her eyelashes. From sheer fright I kept looking at her. I couldn't help it, until I felt Father's hand touch mine. That seemed to break the spell. I looked down at the carpet again and felt the color rushing to my face. I heard the rustle of her dress, a soft, silky, indefinite sound. She had come forward into the room, had taken one of the chairs. I knew I heard the subsiding of her draperies, and then I felt her watching me. Her presence was like a great light in a closet. It was oppressive. I began to breathe quickly, and the odor of her flower was making my head ache. I heard the crackle of Father's paper as he rolled it, then his voice, low and speaking close to me. Mr. Dingley said you were to be called after Gora. We would better go into the court now so as not to be hurried. Somehow I had a fancy he would not have suggested our going into court so soon if the Spanish woman had not come into the witness room. I followed him down the hall, not daring to turn my head, though I thought I heard the door open again after we had closed it, and then the rustle of her dress. But it did not seem to be following us, but to grow fainter, as if she had turned in another direction. We joined the crowd of people hastening toward the swinging door. As we came up to it I heard from within a high-lifted resonant voice that I thought I recognized as Mr. Dingley's, speaking with pauses and rising inflections, as if addressing an audience. It ceased just as we entered the court. The room was large, though not nearly so large as I had imagined, and quite cheerful in color. 
I had an impression of yellowish pine walls and plenty of light, a continuous though not loud murmur of voices, and the incessant flutter of the movement of a crowd. There were no serried ranks of judges and barristers in black gowns, indeed at first sight my confused eyes saw nothing but the crowd, and such a well-dressed, holiday-looking gathering. I saw girls whom I knew, their gowns making bright spots of color among the men's dark coats. It looked more like an afternoon concert than a trial. Every place seemed to be taken, and men and women, standing up, lined the walls. But a police officer said seats had been reserved for us, and led us to two on the side aisle near the front, and quite under the shadow of the balcony. Once I had sat down among the crowd, I ceased to notice it, and began to take in what was directly before me. At that end of the room, which we were facing, was a platform, railed off, and on it a great high desk, at which a rather undersized man sat, leaning his head on a beautiful white plump hand, and looking up at the ceiling as if he were thinking. His face was round, fair and unlined, and had it not been for his mop of grizzled hair, I would have thought him quite young. "'That is Judge Kelland, who tries the case,' father whispered. I felt a wonder that he should seem so uninterested in what was going on. In front of his desk, but below the platform, a man was writing at a little table covered with papers, and in front of this again was another table, larger and quite long, at which a number of men were sitting. Nearest us Mr. Dingley sat with another gentleman, small, slim, and very calm-looking. They had their heads together, evidently talking, and next to them was a young man who seemed to be making jottings in a notebook. Beyond him I could make out no more than vague heads and elbows on account of the movement of the crowd. To the right of this long table, and on a line with our places, was something I recognized as the jury box, the heads of some of the men in it showing quaintly over the high side. From one thing to another my eyes traveled hastily, taking them in unconsciously, for the one figure I was looking for, that I had expected to see before all others, standing up in the prisoner's dock, the centering point for all eyes, I could not find. The only thing that might have been a prisoner's dock, a small railed enclosure on the right hand of the judge's desk, was empty. But presently there was a shift in the restless gathering. Some people, who had been standing up, sat down, and I saw a little more of the long table, first a space, where no one was sitting, and then the broad back of a man, who had shifted in his chair as if to face the person next to him. In a moment he had turned back again and leaned forward, and there, in the little space through the crowd, a profile like a picture in a frame, I saw Johnny Montgomery's face. The start it gave me may have been pure astonishment. I saw it so suddenly and it looked so different. All the dishevelment, the defiance and anger were gone. His black hair was brushed down, smooth and burnished as a crow's breast. The stock and the great black satin bow beneath his chin were as immaculate and as perfectly arranged as father's, and his face itself was calm, almost sweet in expression. I had been expecting to find a prisoner in a dock, and here he was, dressed like any other distinguished young gentleman in the courtroom, and sitting among the lawyers. All at once he put up his hand to push back his hair, and I saw that his hands were free. I felt a sense of unspeakable relief, as if he had already been acquitted. 
The only thing that seemed to set him apart from others was that expression of his, which was troubling in its very sweetness, as if he were not trying to combat or oppose anything, as if he had foreseen to the end what would happen, and had given himself up from the first. Then a voice, high and sing-song, seeming to come from nowhere, began calling out something which I couldn't understand, and the Mexican I had seen in the witness-room rose from the crowd and shuffled up into the little railed enclosure. The gentleman who was sitting with Mr. Dingley got up, and began asking questions in a weary monotonous voice, to which the Mexican replied that his name was Manuel Gora, that he was a Mexican by birth, and by occupation a barkeeper, that at present he was without employment, but that previous to the 7th of May he had for ten years been in the employment of Martin Rood. I could hear the stir all over the courtroom, and my own heart began to beat. Ah! The gentleman who was on his feet seemed to shake off his apathy and grew very emphatic. Now, Mr. Gora, on the night of May the 6th, where were you? The man answered in a low voice that all that night he had been in Mr. Rood's gambling hall. Go on, tell us and the gentlemen of the jury all that you remember of the occurrences of that night and of the morning of the 7th until 6.30 o'clock. When the Mexican began speaking, all the rustle died out in the court, and in the deep silence his precise, mincing utterance made every word distinct. He had gone on duty at 6.30 o'clock, he said. The hall had closed at 11, it being Sunday night, and at that hour Mr. Rood had not yet come home. He had locked the doors and sat up until 2. Then Mr. Rood came and went immediately to bed. Here the lawyer interrupted. Do I understand you that Mr. Rood lived at the gambling hall? No, the man said, but he had rooms upstairs which he often used. After Mr. Rood had retired, he had himself gone to his own room, which was also upstairs, but in the back of the house. He was not yet asleep when he heard the bell at the side door ring. And then, the Mexican said, I went to Mr. Rood's door and asked if I should go downstairs. Mr. Rood said no, and then he said, Curse him, no, I won't let him in. But after the bell had rung three times more, he called me and said, Go down, Manuel, let him in, I will come down in a few minutes. After that I went down and let in Mr. Montgomery. One moment, Mr. Gora. The lawyer who was standing had raised his hand. Was there anything in Mr. Rood's manner which led you to suppose he had feared a visit from Mr. Montgomery? The man who had been sitting next the prisoner was on his feet. Object, Your Honor, to the form of the question as being... He mumbled the rest. I couldn't get a word of it. The judge brought his eyes down from the ceiling, looked at the big man who was calling out to him, then said in a conversational voice, Objection sustained, then looking at the other man. Change the form of the question. Father, I whispered, that man who just now objected, isn't he Mr. Jackson? Hasn't he been at the house to dinner? Yes, and one of the best lawyers in the city, but he is defending Montgomery, I am sorry. Did Mr. Rood, the first lawyer began again, show surprise when you told him there was someone at the door? No, sir, the man hesitated. He was angry. Mr. Dingley's lawyer looked triumphantly at the lawyer for the defense, 
Then he again turned to the witness. Had you ever seen the person you let in before? Very often. He came a great deal to play. Can you point him out? The Mexican peered at the crowd. He is sitting the third from the end at that table. There was a sigh that seemed to come from the whole courtroom. I tried to get a glimpse of Johnny Montgomery's face, but too many people were standing up and moving chairs, and when the flutter subsided a little, I was able to catch the witness voice going on. Then I brought them some drinks, and Mr. Rood told me to go to bed. They were left alone down there when I had gone upstairs. I went to sleep. I was waked up in the very early morning by quarreling voices, and before I was wide awake, I heard a pistol shot. I ran down the stairs and out into the back of the house, as I do when there is trouble, and wait until I think it is over. Then, after listening a while, everything perfectly quiet, I go out into the bar where I left them, and it was empty, but on the floor I see a pistol. I look at it, and it is discharged. Then I go into the other rooms. No one. Then I hear the crowd crying. I look out the door. There I see him. It seemed to me I couldn't bear to hear any more, and I stopped my ears until I saw the lawyer for the prosecution sit down. But as soon as he was down, the lawyer for the defense was on his feet, and had begun asking a lot of questions that seemed to me very foolish and very little concern with Johnny Montgomery. Then, without seeming to have made any point at all, Mr. Jackson sat down. The Mexican came down from the witness stand. The judge left his place and went out through a door at the back, and a man who had been hovering on the outskirts of the lawyer's table hurried to Mr. Dingley and whispered something to him. Instead of coming over to speak with us, as I had expected, Mr. Dingley went hastily out of the room. Father left me to speak with a man on the other side of the court, and among all the standing and walking and going out, Johnny Montgomery and I were the only ones who sat quite still. As yet I saw him in profile. He was leaning forward, his elbows on the table. Now and then he ran his fingers through his hair. Once I thought he was going to drop his head in his hands, but after an instant's drooping he threw it up sharply with a sort of shake that tossed the long locks out of his eyes, and faced around in his chair and saw me. He didn't seem surprised at finding me there. I couldn't be sure that he had not known just where I was all the while, but though he looked at me so steadily it was not somehow like a stare. He did not look at me quite as if I were a human being, but as if I were a statue or a picture. He was the one who turned away. Then I sat looking at the back of his head. There was a murmur of talk all through the room, but above it I heard two men behind me greeting each other. One said, "'Well, what's the game? Is she a stricken widow or a hopeful fiancé? "'A little of both, I guess,' the other answered. "'She's been pretty good to Rude, ten years, but he was getting gray and fat, and the fair Carlotta herself is nearing the age when a woman begins to yearn for beauty and youth. There's one thing I will say for her, though. She seems to be hard hit. I never saw the man Carlotta would turn her little finger over for before,' and she's going in for acquittal with all she's got. It's scandalous, that's what it is. I heard the first speaker bring down his fist on his open palm. Oh, I don't know, the other said. I think it's pretty decent of her, and she may manage it. Great is Carlotta. 
They moved away, and I sat still, staring stupidly at the back of Johnny Montgomery's head. The cool, callous tones of the men knocked on my heart like blows. I was amazed at the familiar way they spoke of the Spanish woman, in spite of all her dignity and commanding beauty. But to hear them speaking of Johnny Montgomery as if he belonged to her was intolerable. It was ridiculous. Of course it might be that she was interested in his case, might even be in love with him, but that he should care for her. I was so unnerved that I didn't notice father's reappearance until he leaned over and touched my arm. "'You will probably be called next,' he said. Then he must have felt me trembling and supposed it to be nervousness. "'Remember for the honor of the family,' he whispered, smiling." The lawyers and the men who had been writing were all coming back to their places, and then Mr. Dingley hurried in and down the aisle to where we were. "'My dear Fred,' he began, and then I couldn't hear any more, because he pulled father by the arm until they stood a little farther off from me, where they talked very earnestly for some moments. Father looked perfectly disgusted. "'Next time be very sure before you order our presence in a court.' he said as he came back to his chair. I am capable of great disagreeableness, as you know. Mr. Dingley smiled and rubbed his hands, and said these little unexpected things would turn up. Then, as the judge was coming into the room, he hastened back into his place. Father threw his coat over his arm and said, Come along, Ellie. What is the matter? I asked. Oh, one of their infernal technical hitches. After insisting on your presence this morning, your testimony is not required. I got up very slowly. I couldn't resist sending one glance toward where Johnny Montgomery was sitting, and as I did so, he turned his head. It was the same quiet gaze he had given me before. It must have been only my fancy that saw something wistful in it, but I hated to go. I felt as if I were leaving him alone in the hands of his enemies. It seemed impossible for me to remember that of all those enemies he had, I was the very worst. End of chapter 4